Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 16 of State of the Game, the golf cot podcast that knows nothing about the latest adjustable driver, but does talk about the stuff that matters. My name's Rod Murray, and on this first episode for 2013, we have plenty of material to cover. Everything from talk about bifurcation in high places in the game to the designer of Rio's Olympic course visiting the Melbourne Sandbelt. We'll find out what he learnt and what he thought of Australia's premier golf district. To help me do all that today, I'm joined by two of the most respected analysts in the game, blogger, author, and course architecture critic, Jeff Shackelford, comes to us from the west coast of the USA. A welcome to you as always, Shack. Thank you, Ron. And here in Australia, touring professional, commentator, and course architect, the always insightful Mike Clayton. Clayton's always good to have you with us as well. Thank you, Rod. And, of course, we are missing our resident curmudgeon from Scotland, John Huggan. Uh, just couldn't manage to organise the International Times to get everybody today. But I promise Huggy will be a part of episode 17. So if you're a Huggy fan, don't despair. He will be with us pretty shortly. On to the topics at hand. Jensen Shack, I wanted to come to you first. Your blog has been on turbocharge the last uh, last week or so. Mark King, the head of TaylorMade, came out and made some comments about bifurcation. Tim Fincham, the commissioner of the PGA Tour, has made some comments about bifurcation. And Ted Bishop, the head of the PGA, has made some comments about bifurcation. All somewhat unexpected, all um, pro-bifurcation, if I could put it that way. This is a huge shift for a lot of these people who've always said that they, they wanted to stick with one set of rules for the game. Give us a quick thumbnail sketch of what unfolded sort of last week. It all sort of blew up at the Tory Pines press conference, didn't it, is where it all began? Yeah, I think that was really it. Uh, Mark King has, has in the last year, suggested that he was for bifurcation, and I think that uh, Clates would agree. I, I've never understood why the manufacturers haven't been for it for a long time, other than uh, perhaps Titleist, where a lot of their business is, is the golf ball. But the other companies have a, a real uh, interest, I think, in it, and, and why they haven't uh, you know, uh, pursued that, I don't know. But what really threw it all off was, yes, uh, Tim Fincham uh, came in the day after the anchoring uh, uh, discussion with the players and Mike Davis at uh, the Hilton there in, at Torrey Pines, where I stood outside the door for uh, two hours of my life that I'll never get back. And uh, we were kind of shocked. We were just sitting there, and, he, and he, he discussed bifurcation. He didn't think necessarily in the case of anchoring. But then he threw in as his, his, his example the golf ball, and, and it was pretty startling. And so then the PGA of America president, Ted Bishop, who I had interviewed for the Golf World story I did on bifurcation, had kind of been on the fence about it and wanted to poll his members, and then he he sort of jumped on the bandwagon when he saw that uh, where Fincham was going. And I uh, talked to some people, and it was definitely uh, a change of position for for Fincham, and kind of kind of strange. So there's there's some stuff going on behind the scenes there that we probably don't know about yet, but uh, it's just fascinating to see how all of this is uh, uh, kind of co- trying to come to a head. Well, it is an enormous shift, isn't it, for, for Fincham in particular. As you've said many times, the tour has got no interest in getting into the rules business because there's no money in it. What do you think's behind this sudden shift? What happened in that players' meeting? It seems from what's leaked out that the anchoring ban has been pretty divisive and that uh, amongst the players at that players' meeting, the, the point they seemed to be putting to the tour was, you know, um, that they didn't agree with it, that maybe it was time, some of them suggesting, for the tour to start making their own rules. Do you think that's what happened? Is Fincham just reflecting what's been thrown at him in that meeting? Meeting? I, I don't know. I think uh, still a large number of players support the ban, uh, probably still uh, 80% or so. But uh, apparently Tim Clark was quite eloquent. I think the problem is more uh, Fincham's looking at things like the Champions Tour. Uh, I think he's actually even looking at the distance issue now. Um, 
and uh, I, maybe actually seeing that some of these things would be better for golf if uh, the tour had some some very minor distinctions. And, and in the article I did, uh, David Fay uh, was quoted, and he has a new piece coming out in Golf Digest. It's, it's really interesting about the one-ball rule or one-ball condition and a way to just simply modify that if you wanted to have, say, a distance-reduced golf ball and not blow up the rules of golf. And I think Fincham uh, either read that or has talked about it with David and sees the that it's a sensible solution and and it's a way to bifurcate without really dividing the game or blowing up the rules of golf because I don't think uh, he has any interest in doing that for all the reasons you you mentioned Mm. Um, and at the same time which this is something I've ran and raved about for years is that the the, the PGA Tour is is a product an entertainment product and it's been made less interesting by uh, this distance pursuit and, and, and actually really less the distance maybe more than, than kind of the way the ball doesn't move um, and then also by slow play as we saw at Torrey Pines this weekend and, and people are making the connection now as we've all known that all these things kind of uh, are intertwined. Yeah, they are. It's, it's like a great big furball, isn't it? You can't pull it one without other strands moving as well. Clates, I imagine you would have been heartened to read some of those comments of Fincham. He hardly came out suggesting he was going to start trying to change rules tomorrow. But when people in high places like Fincham start to tip their hat to the notion that maybe there's something in the idea of having two different sets of rules, is it, is it a step in the right direction, do you think? Well, of course. It was interesting. Wally Yulon wrote a blog last week, I think, calling for unification and quoted C.B. McDonald as you know, the great old, the first president of the USJ, saying that you know, the great thing about golf is that it's unified and whether you go to America, Asia, Africa, Europe or Scotland or everyone's playing the same game. But he pretty selectively quoted C.B. McDonald who also said that the ball shouldn't be allowed to really go more than 250 yards. So... Uh, if you're going to kind of quote guys from the past and their arguments in favour of unification, you've also got to quote the things they said about the golf ball. And they were arguing back then, Bernard Darwin and Mackenzie and McDonald, that the ball was going too far in the 20s. So, you know, it's, it's been going on for 80 years, but it's high time something happened now. It's, yeah, it's, it's, not a, it's not a new discussion, is it? That's for sure. Clay, it's that whole idea of playing under the one set of rules and all that sort of stuff. It's always struck me that the notion of having different rules for professionals and amateurs, you still have that international uh, unification, don't you? You still play by the same rules, whether you're an amateur in whatever country you're playing, and you still by the, play by the same rules, whether you're a professional, no matter what country you're You don't really lose anything, do you, by splitting it just on this basis alone, this issue alone, it's, and, and it's the distance the ball travels. We have to distinguish between the rules of golf and the equipment rules. I mean, no one wants to play by different rules that govern the play, but clearly, in my opinion, and I'm sure Jeff's and yours, that the, the modern ball has given us two completely separate games that have no relationship to each other. And the only problem with that is, aside from the fact that it's become increasingly more boring to watch is that the golf courses are distorted and, and, and they don't play anywhere near the way they were supposed to play or, or designed to play. So you know, the, the, the interest in watching people play great courses is completely gone because the intent of McKenzie and Ross and Tillinghouse is lost. How far back do we have to go to bring that back into playing? Clates. You play a fair bit with Jeff Ogilvy. He's a you know, world-class touring professional. How much would the ball have to come back in reality 
for the PGA Tour players of the world uh, to be playing the courses as they were intended. Are we too far down that track even if we wanted to go back? Well, it kind of ties into how long the courses. I mean, I mean the ball doesn't need to come back at all if you play 7,500-yard courses, but, of course, only 1% of the players, well, less than 1% of the players in the world can play or want to play courses that long. So if you if you went back to the old standard, which was 7,000 yards, which was seen when I was growing up as being a long course, you've got to take the ball back 20 or 30 yards a hole. So you go back to 1986 when Davis Love came out and people were shocked at how far Davis Love hit the ball when he came on tour. His driving distance that year was 285 or 6 yards. Now it's Bubba's at 315, so it's 30 yards in 25 or 30 years. And, of course, the crazy thing so, is Clades Davis Love's probably over 300 yards himself now, yeah. <laughs> 30 years older. Well, yeah. So, I mean, how far do you drag it back? If you want to make Sunningdale relevant, you've got to drag it back 50 yards, But you know, because it's a 6,600-yard course. But if you went at 7,000 yards going back to being seen as being a long golf course, you've got to drag it back 20 yards or 25 yards, I would think. And it's particularly the tee shot, obviously, that's the problem. It's the big-headed drivers. That's where the bulk of the distance is making making the big impact on the game. We all know they hit their irons and whatnot further as well these days, but it's the tee shot that's really the problem. Um, Shaq, without giving away sort of trade secrets, that David Fay column you mentioned and that notion that he's brought up of being able to implement essentially bifurcation quite simply, can you just tease that out for us? How would that actually work? You said something about the one-ball rule. Well, the one-ball condition was uh, a rule created so that somebody couldn't play a top flight on par fives and a, a, a soft titleist on par threes and pick and choose and um, and it's really only a condition in play and in tournament golf it started with tour events but I, 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 it's pretty widely used in um, uh, amateur golf and college golf tournaments and um, and what it would do in his solution is is uh, uh, allow if there and he <laughs> amazingly he writes this he's not for a distance rollback still which is amazing to me but and I'm not going to argue that with him because uh, it's just pointless. But he, he's not for that. But he is saying if somebody wanted to uh, do such a thing, you could uh, rework the language of the one ball condition and and add in that a, a distance uh, reduced ball as, as a condition of playing in that competition. This doesn't address the anchoring situation, but it does address uh, the, the ball situation. Uh, the anchoring is more complicated because, uh, uh, and and I I just know uh, the big problem from Fincham is is that uh, uh, well one I think he's looking at that he has some very marketable players who are going to be impacted by this, uh, but also I think the Champions Tour the the feedback he's gotten has is, is uh, been very uh, strong and he's he really doesn't see a, a good reason to take anchoring away from uh, the older guys. We said it at the start, Jeff, that the PGA Tour has no interest in getting involved in rules making. But as you point out there, he's kind of been forced into a position where he's got to think about it, Finchham, doesn't he? Particularly from the Champions Tour perspective. Those guys really will put the heat on, won't they? Yeah, and so I think that's what's refreshing about all this. But what I find disturbing as somebody who's been interested in these issues, and I have major problems with Fitchum because he's always – uh, really neglected the game. The game is not of interest to him. He's a guy to make money and strong arm people into you know playing events and whatever he does. But he, he's been obsessed with stars and and name players and marketing. And 
<clears throat> the actual playing of the game has not been of interest to him, but I believe that uh, golf really could be a lot more interesting to watch and uh, setting a better example at the tour level for the overall game if uh, he would just take a little bit more interest and responsibility in these things. And we're now seeing that, so that's exciting. I just can't believe that it took things like this to kind of um, uh, motivate him to actually think long and hard about some of these things like slow play and distance and uh, uh, all the things that, that are tied to the direction the game has gone. So what are the chances, do you think, Shaq? Realistically, we know that by the end of March, uh, the USGA and the RNA will say they are bringing in the, the anchoring ban as of 2016. Realistically, what are the chances that Fincham will not implement that rule on the PGA Tour or the Champions Tour? See, I, I think actually uh, it may go the other way that, that if the tour does do it, they will do it quickly. I think his biggest problem, the word he used is distraction. Uh, his biggest concern, because he's just absolutely uh, a fanatical about not having controversy, which is probably not going over real well right now with Vijay Singh's <laughs> issues, but he doesn't want it a situation where we wait until 2016 to uh, kick in this anchoring ban, and he has players on the fence for the next three or four years, and whether they're considered cheaters or all the different strange words that are used to just describe people who, who anchor. And so he doesn't want that. So I believe, if anything, um, he will push forward and uh, a move to, to start this by October. I don't see him being able to do it. Uh, and, and organize things quickly enough, but um, um, and and it just makes the, the whole situation even more awkward. But I also think he's going to work very hard not to do it for the the Champions Tour. He's uh, he is genuinely in the hot seat for a change, isn't he? He must be really feeling the pressure. Although, as you pointed out on your blog this week, he's well compensated for all of this. So yes, he is. <laughs> yes, he is. Just just a year and a half after laying people off, he gave himself a forty percent raise. It's uh, it's touching stuff. What did he What did he make in in twenty twelve? I, I read it the other was it seven million? Uh, seven, seven seven million. Where's that put him yeah. on the money list? That's not a bad year, is it? <laughs> no, no, not in full, full access to a jet, which he uses mm. uh, uh, constantly. And uh, no, he's he's well compensated, and his lieutenants are well compensated. And uh, so, uh, I expect them to uh, come up with some pretty crafty solutions to uh, match their uh, their lavish income. Yeah, indeed, Clates. Of course, the more uh, the more strident talk in the past week came from Mark King, who's the head of TaylorMade, and he said some things that were um, well. Let's be frank; they were downright disrespectful. A couple of quotes. Uh, from him here. What are we saying? He said some really quite amazing. Okay, so uh, if there is bifurcation or not, we'll continue to make long putters for golfers. If they roll the ball back, we're not going to roll our ball back. We'll be for a tournament ball, but not for the ball that you can play. And he also said that the USGA were going to be irrelevant within uh, within 10 years and a non-entity. That's pretty strong talk. What's your take on that? I mean, obviously, as the head of an equipment company, there's only one one real uh, motivator for, for King, you know, the profit motive for his company. What's your take on that as a golfer, though? I mean, what do we do with these sorts of – how do you how do you counter those arguments that he's making? Well, I'm the wrong person to ask because I, I've looked at these issues and thought about them, and, I, and as I mentioned earlier, I've never understood why the companies moan and whine about the USGA and the RNA when they are not required to make equipment that conforms to their rules. There is no – law, uh, international law, forcing them to do so. They have the right to make whatever they want. And if it's non-conforming, 
Um, so be it. And so I've always been rather uh, disgusted by their complaining about being uh, uh, hampered and restricted by the governing bodies. So this kind of talk doesn't really shock me. I kind of expected it a long time ago from a, a manufacturer. Um, and But the notion of that the governing bodies are somehow the reason behind the um, game struggles is is kind of silly. Um, now it really is silly, actually. And and Wally Uline, which is going to be a controversial position for him, but he's he's really put it out there in his uh, case for unification that uh, a lot of these issues with the game are just simply the demise, at least in the United States, of our middle class. We we just have a class of people who uh, we have an income. Um, uh, inequity divide that's expanded and, and we have a class of people who used to be able to afford to play golf or have jobs that allowed them to go play in an afternoon Tuesday league and now um, they don't they don't really make uh, enough money to do so or they don't have the the freedom at their job uh, to do those kinds of things and that's really the, the biggest problem more than anything for the mm. game and he's, he's probably quite right about that Clay, what's your take here's a quote from King the whole world, not just the golf world, the whole world is about innovation and new and exciting, and consumers only want what's new and exciting. Uh, is has got? Well, I don't feel like golf traditionally has been like that. What's your take on that? Do you think the modern golfer is only interested in the new and exciting? There are a lot of people who are very taken with shiny new drivers and irons and those sorts of things, you know, far more so than they used to be in the past, perhaps when you were growing up. How many sets of irons did you have as a kid? Well, not that many, but Jack May was the boss of Spalding when I was a kid. I used to work in there a couple of days a week when I was at university and he told me, he said, we're just in the business of selling hope and <laughs> nothing, no, nothing's changed from 1975 until now. They, you know, they keep coming out with this new stuff because uh, I'm staggered that, I mean, Nicholas used the same three-wood his whole career. Now you, you have to buy a new three-wood every year because someone told me the other day this new tallymade three-wood, it goes 17 yards further. I mean, Seriously? I mean, maybe it does, but I'm not. I, am I the only guy in the world who can't find the 17 yards? I mean, <laughs> that gives me that these guys. I mean, to me, they're, they're they're a little like the executives who came on the TVs 30 years ago from the cigarette companies who told us that there was no evidence between smoking and lung cancer. I, I mean, these guys will peddle their own point of view to to sell whatever that they're trying to sell and they'll lie and cheat and, you know, just golfers will go. To me, the, the game isn't so much about how far you hit the ball. You know, it's about playing and having fun and being with your friends and playing courses and most people, I think, still want that. And, and the gullible who think that, that, you know, there's some magic club or some magic ball that's going to knock five shots off their score or give them 20 or 30 extra yards are just... You know, they fall into the marketing trap of spending more and more money to buy newer and newer equipment that actually makes no difference to their score. Of course, part of the problem is, Clates, that the manufacturers are now, and particularly in this day and age, we have these multinational companies who seem to have taken over golf equipment, which wasn't the case 20 or 30 years ago. You had a lot of much smaller sort of operations. But now these huge conglomerates, TaylorMade, Adidas and Nike and, yeah. um, you know, uh, Akushnet, huge international entities. Uh, they essentially own the golf media, don't they? Um, you know, they buy all the advertising space, and well, so their message takes prominence in most places. Well, I wrote a column three days ago for the Golf Australia magazine, sort of arguing that that Andy Wally Uline line that the game should be unified, and 
the editor said, well, I really like your column, but I can't run it because they're big advertisers. So, which, which was the Huggy story when Huggy wrote the story about Trump last year for that British magazine. He said, well, I, so I'm sorry I can't run it because he's a big advertiser. So, you know, that's in its own little way, that's kind of how things work a bit, mm. which is fine because, you know, I'll just send the article somewhere else. But, um, you know, it's a commentary on how things work a little bit. Yeah, well, very much so. Of course, we here are untainted at State of the Game, though, to declare an interest. I do work for other magazines and whatnot who do rely on manufacturers for uh, for their income, so I don't think any of us escape completely. Shaq, uh, you touched on slow play earlier, and at Tory Pines last week, of course, we had the Monday finish, and it, to me it was the most uh, public and obvious case of slow play at the professional level that we've ever seen. It was just horrendous to watch on television. What's been the fallout from the Tory, what did they take? Three hours and forty-five minutes to play eleven holes, I think it was, for the final. Yes. Last week, what's been the fallout from that? Has there been any fallout? We've been banging, we've been banging this can for a long time as well, without seemingly much happening. Well, uh, you had Tiger griping about it at the end, and he was absolutely right to do so. It, it was a, a worst-case scenario because they did not repair for the final uh, round, so you had people in those last few groups who were actually not really playing that well. And in over their heads a little bit. Um, but what was fun uh, for me was seeing, um, well, people like the guys on CBS uh, just ripping uh, the pace of play. And they're usually uh, cheerleaders for uh, everything, all things the PGA Tour. And I'm sure they were going nuts down in Florida at tour headquarters. <laughs> but what was great was, was Baker Finch uh, mostly and also Faldo. But they, they were pointing out, it wasn't. It's. It wasn't just that guys were slow. They were not ready. You know, when it was their turn to hit, they're not playing ready golf. And, and that to me is so much more offensive than somebody who just stands over the ball a long time. That's one thing. But when when it's your turn to hit and you're not ready and you're on the PGA tour, that's just embarrassing. And and that's a product again of 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 not having penalties, of not putting any scare into people. And uh, and it was unfair to Tiger. I mean, he, he he really played well. And sadly, all people saw at the end was his ragged finish. Well, there is no way, no matter, even if you're Tiger Woods, can you get in a rhythm and play golf at a high level when, when you're just standing around waiting like that? It was just agonizing. As he noted, there's there were three par threes in those 11 holes that they played. Um, and so it, it's... it's um, it's exciting that people are seeing it. It's exciting that people are recognizing and pointing out to the tour that this is not entertaining because I got to tell you, there have been some unbelievable comments about slow play from, from network executives, from the tour, just saying, we don't see it's a problem. And then now, uh, Fincham, when he came in the press center last week, he didn't mention this. He mentioned it at the PGA show. The tour's initiated a comprehensive study on slow oh, play fantastic. so they're actually acknowledging <laughs> it's something they should look at but of course in Shag. all of his comments he oh, he made clear that they don't necessarily think it's a problem but they're going to study it to see if it is you're so not it's gonna, you're not gonna it's fall. progress but boy it's it's really slow you're not going to fall for the have we're having a study are you it's the old it's the oldest trick in the book when you want to just delay a problem and put it out of sight for a while you have a study or you start a committee that's the easiest way to do it Clates, you play uh, professional golf, and I'm sure slow play has bothered you at times. How much of an impact can it actually have on the playing of the game? And give us a horror story or two to put into context what it is that we're talking about. Well, Peter Fowler was one of my best mates. He was one of the slowest players ever to, in, in Europe. And one year, Frank Williams, who ran the Australian Masters, was fed up with it. So he paired Noel Ratcliffe, Vaughan Summers, and Peter Fowler 
in the last group on Thursday. They were the three slowest players on tour. And then he paired them on Friday, obviously, with the split draw. He, he, he put a 20-minute starters time behind them so the guys who played behind them wouldn't get held up. But interestingly, this morning on the radio here, Andrew Langford-Jones, who's the tournament director, announced that at next year's Victorian Open, they're going to have a cart with every group with a shot clock. And you'll have 50 seconds. The first player's got 50 seconds and the next two players have 40 seconds. So everyone gets timed on every shot and there'll be penalties. So actual stroke might penalty. be the way the game goes, but he's going to bring that in at next year's Vic Open. So that'll be interesting to see how that works. That'll be very interesting. Actual stroke penalties he's talking there. Well, he's, yeah. Uh, yep, you've got 50 seconds, first guy, then 40 seconds, the next two guys. Every player gets timed on every shot. There's a clock with every group and the official says, your turn to play puts a clock on, and penalties. Wow. So that'll get guys moving. It's uh, Yeah, well, no doubt about that. Well, it worked on the old, it's worked on the LPGA, hasn't it, uh, Shaq? I mean, was it, was it four or five years ago they penalised uh, – I can't remember the name of the guy. Was it um, – I can't remember the name. It was in a major. It was like on the 10th tee on Sunday, and she was in contention at a major, and they assessed her a two-shot penalty for slow play. Hasn't been a lot of slow play problems on the LPGA since, if I recall. They also did it to Morgan Pressel, if I recall, a couple of years ago too. So penalties do work, don't they, Shaq? They seem to get the players moving. They do, um, but there needs to be a, a more comprehensive system at this point. It's such a problem. And uh, what's what's interesting is that uh, it, yeah, the in the United States, the American Junior Golf Association actually has a very good program. And I, I'm hoping to uh, go to an event at some point and write an article about it. And uh, several of the players uh, who are graduates of the AJGA, who've played college golf and who've made the tour, they come out to the PGA Tour and they don't know what to do. I heard a story last week, uh, Lucas Glover told the story of uh, Brian Harmon talking about how he called him. He says, Luke, what do I do? I, this is awful. I don't understand how you guys play this slow. And Glover had to explain to him how you, how you slow down to uh, accommodate the, the, the pace of play on the tour and which, of course, Jeff Ogilvie's talked about is the biggest problem is that even players who are fast now slow down just because uh, they'll lose their minds if they try to play at their normal pace. So you have – there are systems in place that are working. It's just that at the, at the highest level, the tour won't do it. And, you know, the USGA has a very good system that's working. It's getting U.S. amateur rounds at four hours and 20, 30 minutes, which is fantastic for uh, – at this point, I mean, we'll take that for threesomes of, of high-level golfers. Uh, playing stroke play in the uh, qualifying, and they have this system, and the uh, they won't adopt it at the U.S. Open because the PGA Tour doesn't have anything like it, and it would make the it would just shock the players so much that they'd whine and complain, and and uh, they already do that about <laughs> the USGA, gonna, so I, I don't know why say. they just don't institute it anyway. God forbid that we should hear two pros whining and complaining. Clay, you were at the Australian Amateur last week. What's the pace of play like at that level? Because I mean, let's be frank, they're called amateurs, but it's in name only. Isn't it? I mean, these guys really can yeah. flat out play. <laughs> like like pros. How was the pace of play out there? I thought, well, it was just the final, so it was only, only two guys playing, but I thought it was pretty good. Okay. Yeah, they played at a decent pace. and yeah. I mean, the, the thing that staggered me was kid Jeff Dragford, who was five up on the seventh tee and lost three and two, but how far he hits the ball. I mean, it was, you know, if people don't think there's a problem with, you know, if, if people think there's a problem with distance now, wait till you see what's coming. I mean, these kids hit the ball. He drove it on the 14th green at Commonwealth three days in a row, which, which is a 350-yard par four. He hit 
driver's sandwich to the, to the 13th hole in the morning at 450 meter par five. So, you know, that was the thing that staggered me. But, but I, I actually think we're, we're kind of going off the topic here, but I, I think it's terrible for their games because they so rely on that power. And, and they talk about how much weight you can bench press in the gym and how, what, what his ball speed and club head speed is. And he hits the ball a long way, but can he play golf? Well, he didn't hit a green from the sixth hole in, so the, you know, from the seventh hole in, and went from five up to losing three and two. So these kids who grow up relying on inordinate power, in many ways, it stops them from developing the really important parts of their game, which is like hitting the greens with five irons, and <laughs> but you know, being able to drive the ball in play and pulling out a two iron when you need it, and trying to understand how to use that power. So, so that was a fascinating thing to me about the amateur. Indeed. Hitting greens with five irons, Clades. Dustin Johnson said two years ago, he hits a lot of uh, long irons. I think it was Mulefield that he said, I hit a lot of long irons there, you know, five and six irons, that sort of thing. Long yeah, irons. I mean, what happened to the driver two iron par four? I mean. <laughs> there he's long irons, six and seven iron. Quite remarkable. Yeah. Five and seven, five and six iron. Quite remarkable. Enough about that. Speaking about power games and all that sort of stuff, of course, uh, you know, drugs in sport. We've just been through the Lance Armstrong thing. The most bizarre case of drugs in sport I can think of, Shaq, Vijay Singh has admitted publicly to taking uh, substances which are banned by the PGA Tour in the form of deer antler spray. Can you first clarify what deer antler spray is and perhaps give us a thumbnail sketch of what's happened here? Because I truly just cannot understand what any of this is about. No, I have no idea what it is, but I know it's 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 a it's an offshoot of the the various drugs that require blood testing on the HGH level, um, which somebody like Vijay would take for recovery. And um, it's uh, it's on the banned list, but it, again, it can't be tested for. So, um, <clears throat> had he just denied, uh, uh, he wouldn't have a problem because they can't test for it. But by acknowledging it, he's blatantly violated the policy, which says that if you attempt to purchase, if you attempt to use uh, certain uh, uh, substances, uh, you, you you've You've, you've violated the policy. So it's really not even a question now on that. It's just a matter of how long he's suspended well, for. Sorry, he has to be suspended. What's your take, Clates, as a tour pro? Are there drugs that can, can actually help people's golf? What's your take on the, you know, it took a long time for golf to develop a drug policy, essentially brought in just so that we could be in the Olympics in 2016. What's your take as a tour pro? I suspect there were guys who used beta blockers, in the days when I was playing, I mean, Nick Price admitted to using him because he had a heart issue, but I'm sure guys who use those guys use those in an attempt to calm their emotional state, which one would think would be the, the most important drug in, that you could use in golf would be something that calmed you down, stopped your hands shaking if your hands were shaky on the putter. But going back to the you know, the, the the power thing. You know, if the game continues to be, be dominated by power, then more and more there'll be the temptation, of, you know, for guys to get as big and as strong as they can. So you get in the gym and you start. I know I don't see how it's a huge advantage, but you know, you, when they're talking about ball speeds and how many, how big the barbells are, they can press in the gym. Then clearly, there's some advantage in using the drugs that are, that other athletes are relied on to. Boost their performance. Would you be banning them if you were in charge for a day? Would you say let it just let it go? You can take whatever you want, or would you be saying no, you can't? Leaving aside the moral issues of the health of the people themselves. Yeah, no, no. I think people want to watch 
the humans, the, the, the human body, whatever sport they're participating in, deal on its natural level and not have it chemically enhanced. To, to you know, for one, it shows complete contempt for the people who've played the sport in the past who've been honest about it because it makes their performances look less worthy. Because some guy runs nine point seven in the Olympics. Well, is he as good as Jesse Owens? Was he ran a second slower but was not full of drugs? Mm. Yeah, uh, uh, you know, you may know Clayton knows he read my book, but I, I this is another issue. I, I it just drives me nuts with with Tim Fincham. You know, he fought this and fought this as he talked about how the players were more athletic. This distance stuff is wonderful. I mean, where did they think that that would would go? And I, I don't. I, it was just. It's just not. Uh, it does not take a great deal of intelligence to see that if you're gonna advocate distance, that eventually players would do things to uh, try and get stronger and and uh, now in VJ's case though I don't think I don't believe that was his intent I don't I, and I and I believe his intent was recovery and that's the other reason to have these bands on these things is people are using things to uh, speed up recovery and somebody who hits a lot of balls is going to look for that kind of thing and I really don't care what he puts in his body uh, what bothers me, though, is the notion that there might be a 15-year-old kid out there who starts hearing about these things guys are doing to uh, get better, and they take something that their body at a certain age isn't able to handle and creates problems for them later in life. And that's that's the reason to to ban these things. Yeah, indeed. And, of course, the more money in the game and the more the game relies oh, on power. They're going to do anything, they, yeah, exactly. to, anything they can to get an edge. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, doesn't it? You, you almost drive people... To to uh, to do that sort of thing. Are they in yep. a pickle here, Shaq? He's a Hall of Famer, VJ Singh. Um, <laughs> the the tour does not like uh, the the you know badly. They're about the only sports league in the world that doesn't announce when players have been disciplined or what those disciplinary actions are. As you say, they have to ban him. Are they going to tell us that they've banned him, or are they going to try and pretend like he's just taken six months off? Or how are they going to deal with it? It's it's put him in a bit of a pickle, hasn't it? Well, as it's written. The doping policy does uh, give them the freedom to announce a suspension, and they did that in Doug Barron's case. Not a whole now, that was a while ago when yeah. that was written. It may have changed, and they may not have told us, but I'm guessing it has not. I'm guessing that they will uh, be very smart on this one and uh, make this uh, go away very quickly and give him a suspension and not allow this to drag out. They would be really stupid if they did something uh, other than that. And uh, because he's he's admitted to uh, something that just the language very clearly states is a violation, and get it over with and um, move along. And I, I I'm I'm guessing that's what they'll do. You'd, you'd hope so, wouldn't you? Of course, the Doug Barron thing. He, they kind of made an example of him, didn't they? And it was easy to do because he wasn't a high-profile player. So, well, and if you, you go back and read on his case, it really is a, a probably the lowest uh, uh, point in Tim Fincham's reign. I mean, just despicable treatment of him, uh, all basically because I think he defied the commissioner's uh, order. And I mean, he was under doctor's care. Uh, it was just, it's just an absurd situation. And I, you know, there have been rumors that he, he earned a very nice settlement for his, uh, his troubles, but uh, I, I I hope that's true, but uh, it was it was just awful the way they treated him. He actually had a medical condition. He actually had a doctor advising him, and they and they still uh, went after him when 
uh, he just was clearly not somebody who was attempting to get an edge. And after him aggressively, which was the, as you say, the disappointing yeah. amount. A couple of things to finish up, Clates, and I want to come to you. Uh, open qualifying at Kingston Heath earlier this week. Three Australians made their way into the field for Muirfield in July. You had a few things to say about that on Twitter. I, I got the sense you don't agree with this notion that we should have a qualifying tournament down here in January for a tournament in July. What was your take on the open qualifying at Kingston Heath? Well, I think in a sense it's a good idea because it gives players from all around the world a chance to who who wouldn't otherwise be able to afford to go to play a thirty six hole qualifying the day before the you know the week of the tournament. It it gives guys a chance to play in the open. In Australia, we've had probably ten of them now, so we've qualified somewhere between thirty five and forty players. Two of them two two of them have made the cut, so it's been a failure in terms of identifying players who are capable of contending in the tournament. Uh, I think my suggestion was take the top three non-exempt players in the Australian Open. Uh, Andrew Langford-Jones had a, perhaps a different take on it, saying that it would be a, sort of a sideshow at the Open, but he thought take a smaller, a smaller tournament, for example, the Victorian Open, and perhaps take the top three players from that. And that would encourage so, some players to play who might otherwise t- not tee up as well, I suppose, Clates is the advantage of that. Yeah. So whilst it's a PR exercise and it's nice for the RNA to come down, it's nice for Kingston Heath to hold it, you know, well, when you see that two players have made the cut in 10 years of qualifying through that system, it's not producing the... Hmm. You know, it's not identifying certainly the best Australian players who are not already in the tournament. Yeah. Could be done better. On a similar note, Shaq, I don't know whether you realise this, but uh, you could have popped down to Industry Hills Country Club, I think it is, this week and had a crack at qualifying for the One Asia Tour. They had a Q school in California this week. What do you think about that? Q school on the other side of the world. Well, as somebody who played two uh, US Open uh, 36-hole qualifiers at that uh, golf facility, I can only sympathize with those who had to play there. It is truly golf in hell. It's built on an old landfill on the side of a hill, and uh, I, I, I feel the qualifiers' pain, but I think it's uh, – I'm, I'm, I'm like Clates. I think it's great. It gives people an opportunity uh, who might not be able to travel elsewhere. I do have one question. Why is the Open Championship for uh, qualifying for Australia uh, held now? I think it's, it's a scheduling well, thing, isn't it, Clates? Most of the players are going to head off to Asia and whatever, surely, and they won't be back in this part of the world until late in the year, I think. Yeah, it's because the players are here. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. It dictates everything down here, Shaq. It's when the players will be here because the world's other tour schedules dictate when our players are actually at home. So okay. all those guys that are, are in that sort of position will generally be off to Asia or One Asia or Japan or um, even Europe, perhaps, for some of them uh, pretty soon. From now, so that was one thing, Clates. The other thing I wanted to ask you about, and this is probably the more interesting, I'm really keen to hear uh, how this unfolded. Gil Hands, who obviously got the job to design the Olympic golf course in Rio for the 2016 Games, which, oh, will the anchoring band be in in time for the Olympics? Interesting question, Shaq. I'll look that up. Uh, came to visit us here in Melbourne uh, a couple of weeks ago. Spent a fair bit of time in Melbourne wandering around the sandbelt. I know you hosted him and took him to a number of courses. Tell us a bit about what unfolded. Did you know Gil before he got here? Uh, yeah, I, I, Gil, Gil and I had driven back from Sandhills uh, in 2002, so I've known him for mm-hmm. 10 years, I guess. We spent some time together in America a few years ago. Uh, he came out because he'd, um, I think, partly sold his vision for the Olympic course on Kingston Heath, and it's a flat, sandy site in Rio, much like Kingston Heath. And 
having sold partly his vision for the course on the sandbelt, he thought he'd better come and see it. So <laughs> he'd not been here we before. We saw Royal Melbourne, Kingston Heath, Victoria, Peninsula, Woodlands, Commonwealth, Yarra Yarra, Metropolitan. So it was a kind of crammed in six or seven day trip down here, which was great fun for us. And I think interesting for him and, him and Jim and Neil who looked at it. And so it was a fun time all around, really. One we played a bit of golf with Ivan Landor, which was interesting. Landor was down here coaching Andy Murray, and he plays more golf than God, it seems, Ivan Lendl. He wants to play every single day. but So that was an interesting kind of match-up, Gil and Ivan Lendl playing golf. Yeah. It, a, is Ivan Lendl as good as they say? Plus two, I think he's supposed to play, but that's the American handicapping system. Is he that good? He's a really good player. You know, he's 53, and he plays – he could play reasonably competitively on the European Senior Tour. Okay. Yeah, he's a terrific player. He loves it. Mm-hmm. You know, it was, it was funny. We were on the we – we're on the – Sixth tee at Woodlands, he'd just driven a, driven the fourth at Woodlands, he, a, a driver at 12 foot, which was the best shot I've seen anyone ever hit there in 35 years. He stood in the sixth tee and hit a perfect little left to right draw down there for a left hander. And I said, I said, well, one thing you know, at least he, you, know, you never would have won eight majors at golf. He kind of looked at me and he said, How do you know that? He said, I'd have outworked them all. And of course, Jim Wagner said, Well, because it was on grass, Ivan, come on, you never would have won. But, um, but he's he's a terrific player. He's, he's really serious about his golf and loves it. And, and a very, but, uh, you know, he, he works really hard at it. Yeah, very but getting back to yeah. Gill, mm. you know, I think it was really interesting for him to see Royal Melbourne and Kingston especially because they're such great courses. And I think as Jeff was, he was really surprised by the quality of Victoria. You know, it's a it's a much different golf course than it was 15 years ago, and it's you know it's a terrific place to play golf and great fun, and doesn't quite get the accolades of the the, the two best courses in the. The city, but it's not far behind them now. Yeah, well, it, it, they overshadow everything, don't they? It's um, yeah, that's that's just sort of the way it works. Clates, at the risk of uh, not understanding a word you say, give me just a taste, and don't take this the wrong way. Of some of the geeky course architecture discussions that must have taken place around Royal Melbourne and Kingston Heath between yourself and Gill, be like a different language, wouldn't it? What sorts of things was he interested in? Uh, well, like everyone who comes to the Sandbelt from America, I think they're interested in how the bunkers cut to the very edge of the greens, which is highlighted best at Metropolitan, how the short grass around the greens makes the game so much more difficult because the, you know, the, the short grass sweeps the ball so far from the edges of the greens and leaves you with such difficult recovery shots. So it's a, it's a, it's a much different take than golf. Certainly the golf we see on TV from America where every green is surrounded by thick rough. and So... You're forever playing easy shots around the greens that are made difficult by terrible lies. Whereas in Australia, you're playing difficult shots off perfect lies. They're just difficult shots because they're backup banks, and uh, and it's a great example of how to use short grass as a hazard. So he was interested in that. I don't don't think there was anything he saw from a strategic point of view that was uniquely different from any other great strategic golf course in the world. All the lessons of strategic golfer at St Andrews for all of us to understand and learn and everything's pretty much a copy of that mm-hmm. but yeah it was the short grass around the greens the way the bunkers tied into the greens and the, the influence they had on the approach shots and just the general look and feel of the golf course the, the, the low profile nature of them the, the understated kind of classic feel of Kingston Heath which is something I'm sure he'll be, he'll be trying to emulate in Rio 
as a as a course designer, is it important to go out and actually play? I know we had the discussion about Martin Hawtrey the last time we spoke, and who doesn't play golf, and you gave us your thoughts about that. But is there it, there must be an advantage to not just reading and knowing about and seeing pictures of Kingston Heath, though you can understand some of those things from that, but to actually go out and play it and hit your ball into an awkward spot and suddenly understand in a way that you can't get from just reading or hearing people talk, the realities of how some of those strategies and some of those things work that you're talking about. There must be something to that, I would think, that will add to the course at Rio, what he can take away from having been here and actually played. Yeah, I think it's always interesting to see how the ball bounces and how it reacts and what it does and what it feels like to play a difficult pitch over a bunker or a rock-hard green with the thing sloping the other way. And You know, you can all think about it and see it and read about it, but to encounter those shots... When we played at Royal Melbourne, the Greens were, they'd just come off the, the master of the amateurs tournament down here and they were hard and fast. And, and in fact, that, well, that's not right. We played on the Monday after the field. So, oh. so we actually played during the tournament. Wow. And the, and the Greens were hard and fast and that's really when Royal Melbourne's great fun to play and you know, I'm sure that was interesting for him to see that. Yeah, indeed. There must have been some terrifying shots along the way if that was the case, if it was firm and fast, because there are some terrifying spots on that golf course, aren't they, when it's in that sort of condition? You, there are, yep. You can there are. Some shocking Just places. when the wind's up. It wasn't that windy, but it got windy the last day that week and the, the scores went from being pretty good to being pretty high by the end of the week. Fantastic. It'll be very interesting to see that Rio course and see if we can spot any of those Australian influences. It probably won't be that obvious, but uh, if you look, I'm sure some of that will be taken on board. I wonder who paid for that trip, Shaq, and what's your take on Gil making the effort to come here and play in Australia? To me, that's testament to why it was the right decision to pick him to design the course in Rio because he can go to that sort of effort. Well, you don't think that uh, the other architectural candidates would have gone to that effort? I'm shocked you would make a, an accusation like that. Um, uh, of course, it's why they pick Gill. It's uh, the general curiosity factor. I mean, that's that alone is what makes him unique. I don't know if the other architects are even that curious about uh, things they haven't seen or uh, or actually would acknowledge uh, that they are lacking in knowledge in certain areas. So... Um, I, I and of course I loved that uh, I was thrilled that Gil loved Victoria and that that I think will be probably very inspirational in in the the Rio design um, and should just be an inspiration in terms of look and presentation to uh, a lot of golf courses uh, especially if they're on any kind of sandy soil so um, it's uh, I, you know the the one thing that'll be interesting for me is if uh, I would love to see uh, some bunkers built in the style of, of uh, Kingston Heath and, and Royal Melbourne and, and Victoria's, and notably the tight grass, the thick lip, and then obviously the maintenance of the bunker too as well. I think that would, uh, if, if, if the, uh, that look was presented during the Olympics with the, the, the firm faces and, and really only raking the bottoms, it would, be, uh, it would be wonderful to kind of show the world that that uh, uh, less taxing form of bunker maintenance is a good thing. Yeah, indeed. Do you know if Gil, I know you're, you're good friends with Gil and you've actually done some work with him, Shaq, is he doing any other pilgrimages? Are there other parts of the world that he hasn't seen golf courses that he's, he's looking to no. get to before? Or no, that was, that was the one because he hadn't been there and um, he's talked about the Rio site. It has some sand and, and trying to really do a sand bell look. So it would have been um, awkward for him not to have been there before he built the course. So, uh, no, that's the place he, he needed to see. He's seen quite a bit of golf, but uh, uh, I know from talking to him that they they had a great time and 
he really pretty much loved uh, everything he saw, and, and uh, it was it was fun because I had I had kind of I knew Clates would take good care of him, but I'd said you know uh, uh, these are the things that really stood out to me, and and they were all the things that he really liked as well. So. Uh, uh, he had a blast. Fantastic. And look, as a as a as a respected international course architect, it's important almost to tick that. It's almost a black mark if you haven't visited the Sandbelt, isn't it? You kind of need to see it, don't you? It's an important part of the golf design world. So uh, good on him for doing that. And it'll, uh, as I said, it'll be interesting to see uh, what what sort of course we look at at in Rio and see whether we can see some of those influences there. Well, I think that just about finishes. I did want to ask you. Shaq, what have they done with the tweeting? All the journos are up in arms on the PGA Tour <clears> and the tweeting. What have they done? They're only allowed to have two tweets per hole or something. What's all this about? Oh, it's a it's a simple little thing. Uh, the PGA Tour has a, a, a system called Shot Tracker, and it allows people sitting at their office to watch a player play his round and use their shot link system, which is a wonderful system. Um and so they they want to drive you to that. The uh, for whatever reason uh, that's their thing, and uh, you know they they make money off it. I'm assuming. And um, so when when they feel that when writers go out with Tiger or Phil Mickelson, uh, as we're recording this, he's just almost shot a 59, and they're giving play by play details of this, that that somehow undermines people going to the shot tracker to follow this. Well, of course, that's absurd. Uh, it's absurd to think that any kind of tweeting from the golf course is bad, unless, of course, somebody's just pointing out nothing but negative things. But generally what you're doing is you're highlighting what's going on in a, in, in a tournament and therefore making somebody more likely to watch it. So it's just one of those things where the PGA Tour probably has too many lawyers, uh, too, many, too much fine uh, print in their contracts and their... Uh, just trying to be a little bit too controlling, and and it's also part of the growing pains of uh, of social media, of digital media. Yeah, well, there you go. All publicity is good publicity, I think, is what was once famously said, and it seems to yes. have worked for a long time. So you'd think, don't mess with that, and you should uh, you should be all right. All right, gents, I think we'll wrap it up there for the day on the digital media note. We always love to have a bit of a digital media. Uh, item in there somewhere. Mike Clayton down here in Melbourne. Been great to chat to you today. Always, uh, always look forward to catching up with you. And looking forward to more of your gems on Twitter. You've taken to it like a duck to water. It's been great following you on there. Thanks, Rod. And uh, to you, Shaq, over there in LA. Fantastic to chat to you as well. Looking forward to chatting again in the not too distant future. Okay, thanks, Rod. And that wraps it up for State of the Game episode sixteen. Thanks for tuning in. Hope you've enjoyed it. We will be back in the next couple of weeks to do it all again with, as promised, Huggy from Scotland. Looking forward to that, and looking forward to your company then also. State of the Game is a Talk and Golf production. Theme music, Writer's Retreat, provided by Lloyd Cole. Visit www.lloydcole.com for more information. For more golf podcasts, log on to www.talkandgolf.com.